This is the Ethics Lab Podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. We don't have a commitment as a nation to an equitable system for healthcare across the board. It's harder for us to plan for contingencies uh, than it is maybe for a country that has a more systematic way of thinking about justice in healthcare for its whole population. We need to be careful not to conflate intention, not to conflate the two different kinds of roles and, and moral agencies that institutions and physicians have. Those who work on responding to the ethical issues and decisions that arise in healthcare realize that we are invited into the most complex stories that patients, families, healthcare professionals, and our communities have to offer. They not only involve value-laden clinical decisions about patient treatments, but community decisions about public health that sometimes place the autonomy of individuals against the common good of the community. When reflecting on the work of healthcare ethics, I thought I would ask a couple of colleagues with 25 plus years of experience in this area what their thoughts are on this evolving work or calling. Dan O'Brien just retired as Senior Vice President of Ethics at Ascension Health, and Carol Bailey just retired as Vice President of Ethics and Justice Education at Dignity Health. Both are highly regarded by their colleagues and have worked in diverse healthcare settings, from community hospitals to teaching hospitals to public health issues, in very diverse communities. They have lived the evolution of healthcare ethics over the past 25 years and the everyday challenges that arise. We sat down recently to reflect on their experience. When I went to high school career day, the booth for healthcare ethicist was not there. So for you folks, how did this start? Dan, how did you start to understand that there was work in this area called healthcare ethics? And, and how did that begin for you? Well, actually, it, it goes back a long ways to 1979. I was 25 years old and I was. Um, not married for a little over a year. And um, I had a daughter who was born with severe um, prematurity complications. Uh, her name was Maeve. And she was in the hospital for three months. But during that time, my wife at the time and, and I uh, really struggled with making decisions um, about our daughter's care. And she was in the NICU for most of that time. And it seems that the main thing that doctors did back then and parents did back then was just to do everything they could to keep their loved one alive. They tried everything. There was never a discussion about consequences. There was never a discussion of, about risks and benefits. It was just, you try this and if it works, they live. And there was never a discussion about the damage that can occur from trying different things. And, and of course there was, and that always struck me even then as as a, a really deficient way of making decisions. And then years later, about seven years later, um, I went back to graduate school. My daughter's health had, had stabilized by that time, and she was still severe, profound, multiply disabled, but she was in pretty good health. And when I went back to school, I went to graduate school at Aquinas after completing my bachelor's in philosophy at Regis University in Denver. 
Um, I wanted to get a master's degree in systematic theology. I envisioned myself going into teaching and uh, teaching adults primarily. So, But during that first semester, I was introduced to foundations in ethics. And one of the concentrated areas of study was in healthcare ethics. And I was blown away by it. I was just blown away by its relevancy all of the considerations that went into the readings that I uh, was uh, exposed to and realized how I had no exposure to any of that when in 1979. And this was in the mid-80s that I was going back to school. It, it just really attracted me as an important field. And I thought, wow, this is something I could really get into. I, I know it would have benefited me, and I'm sure it would benefit a lot of people. So I start searching around and I, I found Kevin O'Rourke. He was he had opened up a center for healthcare ethics at St. Louis University. I spent a lot of time with him. Uh, I got to go on rounds and uh, listen to what physicians were struggling with. And when I was working with Kevin O'Rourke and, and reading materials, I, I came to realize that most of the ethics that was do, being done, the, the healthcare ethics that was being done was in academic medical centers or at universities in philosophy departments and theology departments. Um, there weren't a, a lot of, or at least I wasn't aware of a lot of practitioners working in hospitals uh, or applied ethicists working in hospitals or in hospital systems. It was still uh, ethicists uh, doing the work inside clinical settings uh, outside of academic medical centers or outside of universities was, was still a, a fairly new thing. Carol, going to go to you with that same kind of question and wanting to capture how this began for you. You know, after uh, about 10 years in uh, high school education, I taught English and drama. I still think of myself basically as a teacher. I decided I wanted more uh, education, but I had an intervening job as a, um, in the early 80s, health systems as such were pretty new. So the health system that eventually became Catholic Healthcare West and then CHW was tiny, and I worked in it for the um, vice president for planning, planning and strategy. So I did a lot of different little things for him. One of the interesting things is that all kinds of um, reading material cross my desk about the, you know, a a planner is, um, does future thinking. So there's all this futuristic sort of stuff that came across his desk and the stuff, the reading that I did that was the most interesting to me uh, was when it talked about how our ability to ask philosophical questions or moral questions about these new technologies was not keeping up with the new technologies themselves. That really, that grabbed me. Um, and I decided, having met uh, uh, one of the sort of grandmothers in the field in California, uh, Corrine Bailey, she's no relation. She's, uh, you know, I'm 5'4". She's almost six feet, I think. She's much older than I am. Um, and she was a sister of St. Joseph of Orange who was doing bioethics. She was one of the early, very early practitioners in a hospital. Uh, she and some other people wrote a handbook for hospital ethics committees that I think was in the late 70s. Um, so I spent some time with her and I thought, wow, this is, boy, this is really interesting. So I went to Georgetown and had the pleasure of 
being around um, Dick McCormick and uh, Robert Veach, who I eventually wrote my dissertation with, Tom Beecham, who kind of wrote the book on informed consent that's maybe two or three inches thick. I never thought I would get a PhD. I thought, oh, maybe I can do a master's. But then when I got into it, I didn't want to let go. And the, the, the root discipline at Georgetown was philosophy. Um, those philosophy and theology were the two academic ways uh, that you that you went into bioethics um, in those days in the early '80s. And Carol, as you know, as you look back over the past 25 years, what has the seat you've been sitting in given you the opportunity to be engaged with at Dignity Health? Dignity Health, Catholic Healthcare West, is much smaller. It's in California, Arizona, and Nevada, which are a couple of the most difficult environments, healthcare environments to be in because of a variety of legal issues and political issues and other things. When I worked in um, Michigan, the system had several hospitals in Iowa, including a couple of really dinky ones. So in the bigger hospitals, we were, like Dan mentioned about end-of-life questions, in the bigger hospitals, questions were constantly coming up about whether or not you should withdraw a respirator from a patient and allow that patient to die. In the smaller hospitals in Iowa, I remember one very clearly, their ethical issue, and it was genuinely an ethical issue, was whether or not they should purchase a respirator. That was the values-laden question that they were dealing with. So size is part of it. Like you said, um, you know, academic medical centers and how a faith-based organization would engage with uh, academic medical center. Um, we also had Dignity Health, uh, Health also has 25 Catholic hospitals and then 15 hospitals that are not Catholic and don't call themselves even faith-based. There is a faith element. It's not an organized religious element, but there's certainly a sense that it's not just not-for-profit. There's a set of values that um, those organizations put their faith in, really, to affect the way medical care is delivered. Those conversations translating the universal aspects of Catholic health care to a community that tends to think of Catholic as a monolithic, Rome-based, you-can't-do-this-and-you-can't-do-that religion uh, with the long finger of Rome, you know, sticking your, poking your eye out in anything you want to do, and you're sending all your money back to Rome, certainly. Um, There's been a lot of conversation to clarify what Catholic healthcare is and what Catholic healthcare means in terms of partnerships, like Dan said. Yeah, you know, you, both of you are talking about the complexity that you were involved in. And so as I start to think of stories of complexity, for you folks, what, what, would, what would have been those issues of complexity in your time? Carol, I might start with you. What was, what was the issue of healthcare ethics complexity that A, showed you how complex these issues are, and B, it just seemed to cut across the full diversity of the community? In the early days of the HIV, what was then an epidemic, that was certainly representative of the complexity because it was not only a vulnerable population that our founders have particular fondness for um, vulnerable populations. It was a vulnerable and stigmatized population. How we addressed those two issues 
with physicians who, you know, in the, in the early days, we didn't really know how HIV was spread. And there were professional ethical issues about whether or not you could absent yourself from care for HIV patients, which sometimes felt like wanting to distance people from a stigmatized population. And other times, may have been um, what, morally speaking, we would have thought is a, a more legitimate um, issue of, you know, balancing family commitments or other professional commitments if they were the only um, specialist in a local community who's, who, who sort of couldn't afford to contract an infectious disease like that. That, that was one. And it, it went across politics. It went across public health concerns. Um, it went across insurance questions, um, how, how we were going to pay for things, use of space, use of time, use of resources. Uh, St. Mary's Hospital in San Francisco had uh, the first and for a long time the only um, skilled nursing facility uh, dedicated to uh, AIDS patients who were in the final stages of their illness. What the HIV epidemic has in common with the later uh, questions like SARS and flu and other pandemic and disaster response, whether it's a an earthquake kind of a disaster, a great big fire kind of a disaster, or one of those infectious disasters. Those were questions that I found fascinating because they they broke the the tidy boundaries of either the hospital or the home health care agency or the hospice or even the HMO that I might have been at one time or another really employed by. There are some things that don't care who you work for. Those questions, I think we still haven't really figured out, partly because we don't have a commitment as a nation to an equitable system for healthcare across the board. Um, so it's, it's harder for us to plan for contingencies uh, than it is maybe for a country that has a more a systematic way of thinking about justice and healthcare for its whole population. So Dan, let's let's go to you. What what for you have been a couple of the issues that just demonstrated the complexity because you were you were you were so involved in them and um yeah they just showed the the, the complexity of healthcare ethics in these kinds of issues. One thing that continues to emerge and I think it's becoming more uh, of an issue uh, in partnerships, is the whole uh, corporate practice of medicine doctrine. Uh, and I, I call it a doctrine. It's not a religious doctrine. It's a legal doctrine. It's the concept that uh, clinicians are, are always separately licensed professionals who uh, are not licensed by the employer. Uh, they're not empowered by the employer, nor are they ever simply an employer's agent, but they are a profession professional dedicated to caring for persons, individual persons, individual patients. Their, their foremost interest is, is uh, in, in uh, making sure that their professional competency is up to date, that they are always caring for patients, looking after the interests of individual patients. Institutions, on the other hand, um, may also have a, a dedication to patients in general, uh, to the sick and to the suffering and to poor and vulnerable persons. Um, and so there's a lot of common interests that they have, but the interests do not always align. And so getting clarity around 
the distinctive agencies between the corporation or the institution and the individual uh, practitioner, professional, uh, is becoming more and more critical as partnerships become more necessary because physicians don't have, uh, you know, they're not trained most are not trained to be excellent business people. Uh, So they don't have all of the business skills that the institution may have. And the institution uh, is not trained to practice medicine. So we we need to be careful not to conflate uh, intention, not to conflate the two different kinds of roles and and moral agencies that institutions and physicians have. But it's becoming more and more uh, an important issue today as uh, we enter into population health where the integration of uh, institutions and and medical practices become more uh, dominant. But at the same time, the moral agency of the institution and and the professional are not identical. Each of us probably in the journey of doing this work of healthcare ethics have had individual patient stories that have been pretty formative for us. Dan, you started us off by uh, just talking about the experience of your daughter. What were the formative patient stories that you experienced that really kind of taught you, informed you about how healthcare ethics needed to be done? Carol, what what about you? I'll start with you. I had an experience early in my career of um, how important it is to hear all the perspectives in a case. Uh, when we when we talk about cases, we we very often act as though they're cases the way the way physicians discuss cases we give the you know brief history what the patient's up to what's happening um and then the question is what should we do now um medically this case um for me illustrated how a, a an ethics case is a really different animal from a a medicine case the way it came to me is that i heard the case told from three different people one was the doctor and the doctor said um, an eight-year-old girl was brought to the ER in an asthma crisis, but that the doctor uh, wanted to admit the child. She was in uh, asthmatic crisis. The parents refused, uh, took her home. The child returned in the middle of the night in cardiac failure from misuse of the inhaler. She had been using it constantly, and then she died. And then the doctor called CPS to investigate the parents. I then talked to the nurse, one of the nurses who was on duty, who told me, in addition to that, that the doctor himself had been reported to CPS the week before for not reporting abuse in a different case. So he was extremely sensitive to that. The doctor had also renewed the asthma medication uh, four times in the past six months without ever having seen the child in the office, which is kind of a red flag that her asthma was getting worse. So that's what I heard from the nurse. So there was a little more to the story. And then when I talked to the chaplain, who doesn't have um, a medical view, uh, but a clinical view in a different sense, she filled it out even more to tell me that the family, they were farmers, they lived about an hour from the hospital, they were self-employed and therefore self-insured, and money was extremely tight. There were four other children in the family. The farm was not doing well. They didn't want the child admitted for a couple of reasons. One is because they were convinced that both the hospital and the doctor, which they saw as rich and distant, were really just interested in money. The real crowning point that I learned from this chaplain about not wanting the family not wanting to admit the child is that it was Christmas Eve. 
those details are so relevant. And I, I, that really was formative for me. I vowed never to take one person's story of a case as the case. It's any case is in a way is fiction. It's based on fact, but you put in details and you leave out details. And those details are um, critically important to how you see the case and what the moral questions of the case are. Dan, same question for you. What was the one of the two of the formative patient stories that you got involved in that seemed to have an effect on the rest of your work of doing healthcare ethics? Yeah, I, as I was listening to Carol, I was going through my head about uh, one case or two cases there were, and and I can't think of uh, one particular case, but I can think of many cases and what do they have in common? So I was asking myself, what do these cases have in common? And I, I thought of a, of a baby um, in a, one of our hospitals who had a neurological degenerative disease and the baby was, uh, was not going to survive it. But that baby became uh, a political football in the community and actually in the national media, which is very unfortunate, being politicized the the intimate facts of the case were left out, um, very much like what what Carol was describing. Uh, you know, you can't you can't get the whole pictures from just one interested party, and you certainly can't get the whole picture from individuals who aren't even directly involved in the care of of, of the individuals. So I I thought of those kind of cases that we've had, and I, I would agree with Carol that it, you have to look at the whole side, not let not let yourself be swept away by one perspective. One thing that is, uh, strikes me about difficult cases is that it's easy for us to be pulled from one extreme perspective or or by one extreme perspective or by another. And I have found over the years, and this has been formative for me, um, I'm always looking for the middle way, some way of pulling the extreme perspectives and bringing them together and seeing where is their common ground or where where is there a, a middle way for resolving the dilemma or for bringing the parties together to uh, or bringing the parties uh, onto the same side of the table rather than seeing the other uh, party as as the enemy or seeing the other party as the ogre. Whether it's race, whether it's religion, whether it's politics, whatever it is that separates us and makes us see the other as the enemy or sees the other as the problem. Over the years, I've come to see my role in ethics as as helping to build bridges between those extremes and getting people to come together and somehow to see each other's perspective. So mediation in, in many ways, a, a lot of ethics is, is about mediation. I mean, of course, there's, there's principles and there's values that we have to consider, but, but then how do you mediate those, those uh, values uh, between different parties? That, that to me is my mantra, I think, in, in ethics is how do I find the, the middle road? How do I find the via media, as uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, said in the 13th century? If you think of the next generation of healthcare ethicists that you've worked with, uh, perhaps have had an impact on if they were sitting in front of you today or if they were listening to this podcast, what would be two or three things 
that you think are really important for them to understand in their career in doing this kind of work? I would say two things. One kind of goes back to the birth of bioethics, the early, very early days. Now you can get a degree in healthcare ethics. And that might have been true in the early days, but it was more true that you had a primary discipline like philosophy or theology or law or anthropology or nursing or medicine. One of the things I would say is really important for people starting out in this field to understand is the the wealth that a different perspective, a different disciplinary perspective can bring you um, in any one scope of work. It's just, it, it should be broad. Um, it shouldn't be sort of contained. The other thing I would read and not read academic literature, but read novels, read writers who are telling you about the human condition and human concerns. And from that, develop your imagination and your empathy. Um, because those those things you will never learn in school and you, you'll learn on the job, but it'll always be a step too late. <laughs> Developing your your own understanding, your ability to listen and your ability not to have an answer, but to hear people's suffering, um, I think is critically important. And I really think the way to do that, one way to do that is to read. I would build on on Carol's uh, first observation about um, the interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary nature of ethics. Um, I think it's it's good to be rooted in one particular uh, profession, whether it's philosophy or theology or law, but but then to also be uh, well acquainted with public health and health law and theology and philosophy and medicine, pathophysiology and general anatomy, knowing enough. To know what you don't know is important, or knowing that you're in over your head. If, if you are too steeped in one profession, you're losing perspective there. That, that's, that's so important. And to approach it, ethics in that interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary way, I think helps build a platform of humility. And so humility, I think, is, uh, from my perspective, is, a, is an important uh, attribute of, of an ethicist. Really understanding what you don't know, not being afraid to ask questions, not being afraid to um, expose your ignorance. Don't, don't think that you have to have the answer for, for every question, but, but the answer often emerges through dialogue, through discussion, and, and even then to become... Uh, with our humility uh, to become uh, aware that that sometimes the the right answer uh, just doesn't emerge, and I would be very hesitant to think that there to advise anyone that there is the the perfect answer uh, to any kind of uh, ethical dilemma that we might be facing. You've both spent uh, twenty five plus years in this discipline. Um, looking at these types of healthcare ethics situations. And you've seen this discipline evolve, this, this work of healthcare ethics, and um, you've participated in that evolution. What would you say are one or two questions that the discipline needs to ask itself? Are there certain things that, that we're not looking at that we should be? One of the questions in my mind is, is the question of courage 
because we're hired by institutions, often hired by institutions, our own position can be compromised. There's a danger of us becoming compromised in our position because uh, uh, we have a self-interest, a self-interest to stay employed, (laughs) self-interest, right? right? And so that self-interest, I think we need to be mindful of that and we have to have those conversations. How do we have the courage to, to call out a problem that we know will not be popular in the organization or will not be how do you how do you be a prophet without getting yourself killed how do you recognize the good that people are trying to do in the institution but at the same time challenge them to look at things in a different way without uh, lopping off your own head <laughs> how do you do that in a respectful way that that's 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 difficult the other thing I would say from the perspective not so much of Catholic healthcare, but of, of healthcare ethics in general, in the earliest days, ideas about what makes a human life valuable, those were questions that were asked and answers were given from, as we said, a lot of different disciplines, including philosophy and theology and, and religion, frankly religious views used to be much more tolerated in secular bioethics discourse than they are now. And I think that's a challenge for those of us who come from a foundation of a particular religious worldview to be able to re-enter that conversation in a way that is not close-minded not um, authoritarian, not we have all the answers because our religion tells us this or that, uh, but but can bring some of the insights of a religious worldview and also can, I want to say, sponsor respect for other religious views that aren't our own, um, but that probably should be part of the dialogue. Bioethics in general has um, consolidated um, and I don't, I don't necessarily mean just around political correctness, although there is a remarkable lack of diversity, I think, in, in the way bioethics people think about certain things that has happened over time. We started out way much more all over the board, and we've, we've seemed to have um, – and some of that, I think, is a, is a good thing. There is a consensus view about certain things among uh, people who have spent some years in in the discipline of bioethics. Um, But I also think there has been a battening down of the hatches to a certain degree, Um, and the diversity isn't there as much as it used to be. Along with Dan's last uh, comment about how important it is to learn how to be courageous without getting yourself in trouble, one of the things that really helps that I have found in my um, career is to have uh, an interdisciplinary uh, support group of people like Dan and other people who do this work in other health systems. For a long time, we got together r- relatively regularly, if not frequently, um, and it was a very safe place to really explore religious uh, and and theological issues, and also more or less political issues, either inside of our systems or within the church, that is a really important thing for people to have is, um, um, I think, 
is a disciplinary support group, not just a personal support group. A lot of us think of ethics as sort of that individual, clinical, really fascinating case. Um, And Dan mentioned earlier how over his career, he got more into the organizational ethical issues and now doesn't see a distinction between them. I was really formed by a man named Jack Glazer um, and his book, for anybody who's listening to this, you can get it on Amazon and it's still there. It's called Three Realms of Ethics. Yes. Um, and it's, it's really, really important to learn how to think that way so that we're not shrinking down organizational issues to the size of an issue between individual people. And we understand that institutions have different responsibilities from professionals and professionals exist within institutions. Appreciation to our guests today for their advice and reflection. As always, appreciation to our listeners as well. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again.